0: Hello and welcome to the Virtual Clinical Podcast. I'm your host, Nicole Sunderland. This is a spot where nurses share their stories and their experiences to provide mentorship as well as help nurses and soon to be nurses just like yourself along the way. I hope you enjoy these episodes. Welcome everybody to season three, episode one of this new season. Guys, I'm really excited about this episode. Today we are joined with Sandy Kayo and Joanna Uribe. And these two nurses are probably two of the most phenomenal nurses I have gotten to know in over the last 15 minutes of our brief conversation here. But those, these two nurses, excuse me, are two of the founders of Nurses You Should Know, Helping Changing the Nursing Narrative, which is a website everybody is going to know, so Joanna and Sandy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for joining me.
1: Yay, thank you, Nicole. Thank you for having us.
0: Absolutely.
2: Thanks so much.
0: Sandy, we're gonna start with you. You okay. have a, a, a resume that is really impressive, by the way. Oh, thank you. <laughs> give, me, give me your background story. You've received your bachelor's in nursing from the College of New Rochelle. Why did you decide to become a nurse?
1: Yeah, what a great question. So let's see. I've been a nurse for the past 13 years now. Um, my family, uh, my mom and dad emigrated from Haiti. And so it was probably just written in the stars for me because if you know any Haitian or Caribbean women, everybody's a nurse or a yes, type of medical field. They and love so- helping people. Absolutely. I think that that is really a part of our DNA and our culture. Initially, I actually wanted to go against the grain. I decided I wanted to be a sociology major. So that was my major in college for my freshman year. And I just was like, nope, you're not going to make me a nurse. I'm just not going to do it. Um, And I felt like my freshman year, my second semester, I saw some of my um, colleagues who were nursing majors really challenged and um just like getting into all this cool science stuff and I was like okay I'm good at science I can do this I'm good at math so I switched majors um I think one of the things for me my mom was a CNA um all of her life uh she passed away when we were 17 um when we had to we were in Haiti my sister and I who's also my sister's a nurse practitioner as well um and so she passed away and we did not have any of the medical resources, any of uh, the tools, we were four hours away from the nearest hospital. Um, So by the time she made it to the hospital, you know, they couldn't, they didn't have IVs, they didn't have um, IV solution, like anything that she needed to resuscitate her, there was nothing. And so part of my um, purpose, I think, when I thought about my career in nursing was like, I don't want I want people, especially my people to have that background and education around chronic disease around even like emergency management I've done a lot of global health so it was important for me to have that level of impact. Um, But then I just, I've always just had a passion for the underdogs I started my career in oncology and bone marrow transplant. Um, And, you know, every time I came across people, they're like, why would you work with cancer patients? It's so sad. And it was just always an area of passion for mine. I mean, now my work surrounds all things, health equity and disparity. And I love to tell people because I speak on a, a variety of topics and I almost forewarn people, like if you're gonna invite me to the stage, know that everything that comes out of my mouth will have a health equity and disparity lens because that is what I'm here to do. I'm a equity warrior, equity equity advocate, and I'm, I'm so passionate about the work. So um, I just loved this experience and this career. I'm a family nurse practitioner. I did my DNP in 2014, two weeks before I had my twins, um, or actually two weeks after I had the twins and I actually walked with them. Um, Downstage, I had them a month early and they were like these little micro babies. and <laughs> It was so crazy, but here I was with these little twins. And then, um, so that was like seven years ago because their birthday's coming up. And now I'm deciding to do a PhD. I'm almost wrapping that up. Um, and I've been working in uh, nursing academia. I've done bedside, I've done telemedicine. Yeah. And now I'm doing research, so. And you sound like you have no stress whatsoever while doing all of that. <laughs>
0: Yeah. I mean, and I and I, I really appreciate when you when you t- when you explain yourself as an equity advocate going through your resume, it's so impressive to see that you started out with hematology, oncology, bone marrow transplant, then went on to work Midwestern Connecticut Council on Alcoholism, which not a lot of people would want to do because you know it kind of like has that R about it. And you're kind of like, well, maybe not, you know, but it's really mm-hmm. work. And, Absolutely. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry.
1: Yeah, no, I think, yeah, it was just, for me, always really intriguing to take on the job that people may not have really readily jumped for or jumped to, because everybody has a story, right? So I I think that's what I enjoy about it. Yeah,
0: that's what I'm learning about myself so much about my unit currently, because we're seeing so many different types of people that have problems like alcoholism and drug abuse, that listening to someone's story has become so important and imperative to me, that I just kind of love just sitting there now and just listening to their stories, no matter what they're going through.
1: You, you learn so much just from honestly, like that was a basic nursing one-on-one therapeutic communication, yeah. being a good listener and just hearing people out. You, you just learn so much of the narrative. So I, I love it.
0: Yeah. Now, did you go back for your nurse practitioner during your doctor of nursing
1: practice? Oh yeah. So I ha- I did a BSN to DNP, so I don't have a yeah, master's. Master. I went through, straight through from my bachelor's to a DNP. It was a three-year full-time program. It was crazy. Um, I got married and had three kids in those three years. So it was like, what happened between 2011, and 2014? It was a blur. I not really know, but here we are now today. Here you know? we are. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's so great for, for my students to hear that because a lot of them, you know, they, they, they often hear a lot of times you have to go right back to school, you know, and do this, this, or this, you don't get the opportunity to really explore what you're about. And not a lot of people that I've talked to have, have done the NP to DMP programs without getting a master's first. So that's awesome.
1: Yeah. I, I, I guess I just, I wanted to get it out the way, but here I am back in school. So <laughs> never, I'll probably go back to school after this again. Um, but yeah, and that's fine. Why not? Yeah, right? Yeah. Not wisdom for night for life. So that's what I'm here for. That is, that's
0: so wonderful. And then it looks like you had so many different unique positions as well NCLEX faculty, assistant professor, clinical assistant professor, visiting professor. You were an off shift clinical executive, which sounds, which sounds, is is that kind of like a um, house manager or is that something completely different?
1: Yeah, No, I was the office supervisor, so I oversaw a 1300 bed hospital in the northeast. Um, so all the weekends, evenings, holidays, where everybody left for the night, um, I oversaw all the clinical issues, all the patient issues, and I learned an incredible amount. I, I mean, I came from the oncology world, I, I did PEDS for like eight months, and I, I and then I was the an FNP, and so at the time. Um, I did nights and weekends and there's not a lot of resources oftentimes so you literally had to be on your toes um, you never know what you were walking into and I think that's what I loved about it and it helped yeah. me just to see nursing not through this siloed lens that we oftentimes operate in and kind of look at the huge picture on the on and all the moving parts of a hospital of um, a patient family experience and so that was pretty cool I really enjoyed that
0: that is really cool. And it sounds like that also opened up your equity lens more to oh, absolutely experiences.
1: Well,
0: absolutely. And then your, your current role, you are vice president of clinical performance
1: and transformation. What does that role do? Um, honestly, it's like somebody saw my life and my resume and created this job and said, hey, let's put together everything that you love and give you this title. And I was like, hey, I, I'm here for that. that. That sounds pretty good. So I started this position last April um, you know, took it on a whim. I, you know, I was very happy. I was teaching um, in the city and uh, loved my job, loved everything. And this random person emailed me, asked me if I'd be interested. And they kind of sent me a job description, which was like, okay, this is a little bit of everything. Um, I went on the interview and like, I, I was not like all, all you know, I wasn't sure. I was just like, okay, I'll go on the interview just for, you know, whatever they paid for my hotel. So I was like, no, let me go on this free hotel away from my kids. Um, <laughs> and it was incredible. So I oversee our Health Research Education Trust, which it, it's a nice, extensive portfolio of about over three million dollars worth of grant funding around HIV, maternal child health, looking at all things health equity, diversity, inclusion, opioids. Um, I'm doing a lot of work ar- around enrollment and veterans support, uh, mental health first aid, and so it's honestly a little bit of everything. And I mean everything. I do a lot of legislation and regulatory work around nursing licensure. I work with all of the CNOs for all the hospitals in New Jersey, wow. working with the chief medical officers, all the quality officers. I oversee our uh, patient safety organization. So all of the quality improvement work that we do as well. And so um, it, it, it's a lot, uh, but it is certainly um, has been an incredible challenge. It's opened my eyes to the world of nursing from a very research and administrative and executive perspective. And we have a place there. So I I'm so happy that I I was able to find this position.
0: Well, I'm sure they're happy to find you too, with everything you've done and everything you're continuing to do. My goodness.
1: I hope so. Yeah. It's been a great first year, honestly. So I'm just excited for the, for the next, uh, you know, projects years to come. It's just been really incredible.
0: Yeah. Tell me a little bit about your topic for your DMP and now your topic for your PhD, because I because I really want people to hear this. I think it's so important, and yeah. I hear it from from your your viewpoint. Excuse me.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so in 2011, uh, when I started my DMP program, I was working on this bone marrow hematology oncology unit, and I noticed that many of my uh, black patients and uh, patients of color who received um allergenic transplant did not fare as well as their white counterparts and so i started to ask the questions like why is this oftentimes they i'd have my white patients have a nine out of ten match or a ten out of ten match whereas my um folks of color would have maybe a six or a seven out of ten match and mm. they often have, uh, ended up with a lot of complications i mean graft versus host disease they ended up having just all types of liver issues sepsis and you know, oftentimes succumb to these issues. And so in order for me to better understand that, I asked, well, why aren't folks getting matched? And part of the problem was there are not enough people of color who were actually signed up with the National Marrow Donor Program with these, um, to be able to be donors. And part of the issue was the medical mistrust, um, the historical mistrust and the mistreatment of of African-American Black patients in, in uh, clinical trials. And so fe- folks were ha- very hesitant to offer up themse- themselves, their bodies, their um, bone marrow, uh, and go into the hospital when they're well, because you know in many of these communities, so I, I actually worked with my church. I was a parish nurse and I worked with my church and I did a quick pilot study and looking at donor attitudes and intentionality around donation amongst African-American and minority patients. So I worked with the Be The Match Foundation, they came in, and did a presentation, I did a pre and post survey, and essentially tried to see if there was a difference in attitudes um, once there was an educational intervention. And while it wasn't statistically significant, there was a difference in attitudes because people thought like bone marrow that was like drilling, drilling into your bones, sucking out all the good stuff and like having to go to the hospital and putting yourself at risk. And so the process is actually a lot easier than that. Um, and folks did have concerns around, well, if I go into the hospital willingly, you know, am I going to come out alive? And, and I think that is that is so important when we see where we are today as we are, a, you know, really battling a dual pandemic, COVID-19 and racial injustice and how it's really impacted in particular folks of color. And so now with my PhD, I'm looking at um, psychosocial stress and discrimination and its impact on cardiovascular health, specifically blood pressure control in African-American patients. So essentially looking at how people's perception of discrimination and their stress levels impact how well their blood pressure is controlled. And, you know, inherently, if your blood pressure is not controlled, you're at risk for more cardiovascular disease, um, heart, heart attack, stroke, and death. And so really important that uh, we take into consideration um, the psychosocial components. Um, I'm really excited because I'm using um, a few um, theories. I'm using critical race theory and ecosocial theory and trying to better understand the underpinnings as we look at psychosocial factors in cardiovascular health.
0: That is amazing. And you just hit something that was really important to to me as well, because of the people that I see in my unit and how true it is in terms of blacks that don't want to receive care because they are scared and Mm -hmm. they don't trust the health system. There was a patient that we had only 44 years old who came in with spinal tumors all over and I want to say METs to the brain, but I could be wrong on that, but she had never been treated for pain. She went in for pain and they had wrongly assumed that she was in there for a UTI. Mm. And so I'm a instructor of nursing, a clinical instructor. And I asked my student, I said, what do you think about this? She goes, I think this is systemic racism. I said, I mm. think that would be correct. And I was so proud of my student because I do I'll really, um, you know, really important talk at the beginning of the semester about what you're going to see, but what the lenses that I want you to use when you see these things, because mm-hmm. it can't be the same lens that we've always used because it won't change the healthcare system that you're going to practice in. And so for them to say that, for me, that was like, you you get it. Like, thank thank goodness. Like one person out of, you know, 150 might not be much, but at least it's one person because I only get to impact about eight to nine people a semester. So
1: yeah, but you know what? It starts with one, right? It starts with one good on you Nicole because I think that um oftentimes even for me I think it's hard to have these conversations and I am a black woman and I think oftentimes it you know people are just scared to talk about like what you want me to talk about my implicit and unconscious bias and how Mm -hmm. that literally kills people Mm -hmm. yeah no that's what we Mm -hmm. want to talk about so um kudos to you for really standing up for this and having your students also see the importance because I'll tell you in nursing school and this is why we, we really started this nursing you should know because I it, it's not talked about in the curriculum enough
0: I know <laughs> so <laughs> sorry I'm sorry I got, I got really excited about that but mm-hmm. my colleague who I work with at my university um, I, I have sent her so many articles and I said look I said the students are not getting this and that's not just from me that's from two of my prior students that we've had open discussions with and got uncomfortable with with every one of us because we needed to In a Mm -hmm. very respectful way. But I said, you know, they're not learning about these things. And if we don't start teaching about it, even if it's in a clinical experience with, you know, six to nine people, we're not going to change anything that we do at the larger institution
1: or even the
0: healthcare system.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, it starts with the conversations for sure.
0: Right. That's, oh goodness. I'm, I, I can't wait till your research is published on both of those.
1: Oh, because you can't wait. I can't
0: wait. No, I, I want to be done. <laughs> I know. I know. I'm sure you like, are just like ready to be done and mm-hmm. published. I, I can just think of so many things. Like we have a bone, a, a, um, a bone marrow transplant unit at my hospital that I just want to share this information with, you know, and also the psychosocial stress, on blacks and their blood pressure. I mean, that's just like so important in what I see in in neuroscience, because there's so many hypertensive bleeds that occur in black patients because mm-hmm. their blood pressure is historically high, and it kind of rung this bell because the I'm gonna say this wrong, but it, it it's either the the kidney foundation or another another organization that does the recommendations for kidney care on patients. Mm-hmm. That's the part I, I have no I forget what it is, but essentially, and I'm gonna paraphrase, it's that we have done ourselves wrong for so long by having a black GFR as opposed to a normal mm-hmm. GFR, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. And like, and like, I wasn't knowledgeable enough about this to really recognize like, oh, that's that's a, a big thing. I obviously thought, oh, that must be normal, right? Until somebody pointed mm-hmm. it out and said, no, because of systemic racism, blacks GFRs are higher because they do not trust care. They don't get the care they need early enough. And thus mm-hmm. is why they have problems with the kidneys, not because- based on their race alone, it's high. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, oh, what?
1: So- yeah, I mean, it's so many layers. I mean, there's there yeah. the genetic component, there's a salt sensitivity, but then there's this huge like elephant in the room, like, hey, if you, every time you go to the doctor and your feelings and thoughts are minimized and you're placed in a category and you're not believed to really have the education or the ability and capacity to understand and make changes um, and you're not given the proper information. Like eventually I'm going to say, well, if they don't care, what am I going to do? Like it, right. it is, it is incredible um, in terms of the um, levels of, of discrimination, perceived long t- lifetime and everyday discrimination. There are, there are different levels. And so folks who have um, everyday versus light, long, lifetime discrimination, there's, there's a difference. Whereas lifetime folks have um, even worse a control um and those are the folks who um whose grandparents and parents grew up in tuskegee and who went through the civil uh, through the um some of the civil unrest that you know that we well we're still going through all of that right now but yeah, yeah i think it's so important that you know yeah kind of highlight the psychosocial piece wow well thank you so much
0: for doing that, that research i think it's just like amazing i know it's yeah. part of your passion project and what you want to do but just thank you
1: yeah thank you
0: Joanna, I wanted to to talk to you now. Tell me your story. Why did you decide that nursing was for you? What made you go into nursing? And what's your story?
2: Yeah, there's a couple of things that kind of converge and diverge from Sandy's story. Um, I had nobody in my family that was in healthcare whatsoever. I had never even been in a hospital. Um, I pretty much spent from age like eight to 18 just dancing and like my whole life was about dancing and then I had a knee injury that kind of sidelined me right at the time when everyone was like college and SATs and I was like huh like what's that like I'm like leotards tights like I just was not I wasn't like bad at school but it was so so not my jam right and so um I ended up in an associate's of liberal arts because I just was like caught off guard that I would even have to go to college <laughs> and I would like, have to, you know, kind of enter adulthood at that point because I just yeah. thought it would be a thing for so long um, or at least until like my late twenties, right? <laughs> right? Right, right. Um, <laughs> and then you figure out how to be an adult. Um, so I kind of just did an associate's in liberal arts to just kind of figure things out. Um, and in that time, I took an anatomy and physiology course. And I completely fell in love and it was this, you know, sense of having used my body for a decade, but never having any idea what was going on inside my body Mm. and just loving it and feeling like the cosmos were just like opening up, like just to understand about like cells and your organs. Like I just felt so ignorant after having like used my body as a tool for all those years. Yeah. Um, And then I also had done a study abroad in that time and I went to Dakar, Senegal, and I started learning about midwifery. And again, no one in my family was in healthcare. Um and I just between falling in love with anatomy and physiology and learning about midwifery, I was like, I want to become a nurse midwife. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> um dancer and- to
0: midwifery. Here we go. <laughs>
2: And so I started the process, I enrolled in, you know, I went from the associates into like a four-year program and I got all the way to the end of the nursing school and it was my last semester and it was the like OB semester and like, you know, mother-child and I saw a baby being born and I was like, never mind. I'll be very honest. I was literally the same
0: way in my OBG class. I was like, man, baby birthing is going to be great. You see it then? I'm like, nope. Not for me. Nope. Nope.
2: Nope. <laughs> it was just like the intensity of it. I don't know. I don't know why I thought it wouldn't be intense, but there was just something I, I just and and I've had my like I've I've had two natural childbirths. And like I think there's a difference between when you're the one you know in the childbirth versus observing it. Um, I don't know. I just and that was it. Like I graduated, right? So it was like I went into this whole thing. I was like motivated by this one idea, and then I was graduating. And so of course I went into med search. Um and the night shift and the whole thing. And I ended up doing um, a travel job and it was on a kidney transplant floor. Um, So I had this totally different experience of being in outpatient setting and being a kidney transplant coordinator ultimately. Um, And I spent about seven or eight years in that field. And it was just around the time when people were like, just getting computers into healthcare and the whole, like everything all around us was paper. (laughs) And and, um, in, in transplant, we had these flow sheets that like nurses basically designed and we had every single lab, every single medication, like every single contact phone number, the pharmacy phone number, you know, what kind of match did the kidney, what kind of match, what kind of, was it a deceased donor? Was it a living donor? I mean, everything that you needed, it was like the typical just nurse cheat sheet but it was all handwritten and then when they started transitioning to computers we like were losing all of our wisdom we were just losing all of this like immediate at our fingertips information that we needed and that we had visualized in this way so that we could really take care of the patients in this continuous fashion Um, and I didn't understand why like I was like shouldn't computers be making our lives easier I started, like, literally interfacing and speaking with the, you know, computer team <laughs> and, like, the IT team and just, like, being that annoying nurse that is just like, you know, we need this field here and we need this, you know, thing there and we need a report to go like this. And, like, I guess at some point I learned about a specialty called informatics um, and I enrolled in an informatics program. Um and I was like at the, instead of, you know, how Sandy just kind of plowed through, I had basically gone five years without any school after my baccalaureate. And so if I had waited like another month, I would have timed out of being able to re-enroll at my college because, <laughs> you know, they give you that little like grace period that if you come back for grad school, yes. you don't have to go through like, all, right. Yep. So I was like one month from that five-year grace period. <laughs> um And I was, you know, a kidney transplant coordinator, I was like taking call, I was in graduate school, you know, at night, and um, I just went through the whole informatics thing. And I kind of transitioned from a, you know, clinical role into, I would say a clinical support role, where I was still embedded within the transplant team, but I was actually helping on the back end to support all of the providers and the patients. Um, And we were, it was cool because I was able to work within informatics between the operating room, the emergency room, the laboratory, the outpatient. And I got like this complete bird's eye view of, of how the systems kind of function. And in a lot of ways, I think it's may sound bizarre, but I think that my dance background of like moving through space, I was just. I really just understood like this concept of like the data moving through space and how does the data represent what the patient, what's going on with the patient. And I, it was just something that like my brain kind of understood, it was like abstract, but it was concrete, it, yeah. was, it was creative, um, there was room to play and like figure out solutions. And I think some of the things that I was seeing in the clinical realm were sort of like problems that I couldn't always fix um, very complex problems or, you know, social problems that were going on with the patient. And I felt like with informatics, it was like, if something was broken, I could fix it. And there was a lot of teamwork, um, in that realm where, you know, you can call someone and they're not bothered that they called you. They're like, oh, this is a problem. Like, let me try to fix this for you. Um, so it was, it was being exposed to like a different culture in the informatics world. Yeah. Um, And then just to kind of come up to present day, as I was doing all of this, you know, informatics work, I was realizing that my whole degree program was really centered on data, on technology. And once you start implementing technology, you realize it's actually all about the humans. Like you could throw a beautiful Cadillac system, you know, at people, but if the humans aren't, you know, on board and if they're resistant to change or if they're afraid or if they um, feel insecure or if there's like internal political hierarchical, you know, conflict, it doesn't matter what system (laughs) you can. can, Like I said, you know, you can have like a handwritten paper flow sheet and that could be more effective um, than like some million dollar. Um, enterprise system. So I was, I started to just feel like I was lacking in understanding kind of like the human piece of change. And so much of the technology thing is actually managing the human piece of the change around the technology. And the technology is like 20% of it. Um, So I, I ended up sort of going in this long pivot (laughs) of educating myself, um, going to you know, into design thinking, looking at user experience design. And as I was going into design, um, I just wanted more and more. <laughs> and like, I would take a certificate course or little workshops or online things. And I ended up um, enrolling in an organizational change program. That's a doctorate of education. Um because I just, I wanted to just really understand like what, how do you catalyze change and how do you move the needle and how do you nudge the status quo? Um, And I'm about a year out of the program. I took a, I had to take a year leave of absence um, and I just started back in this semester. Um, And I, you know, got really passionate about kind of bringing what I was learning back into the informatics programs. Um, So I met Sandy when I was in the informatics program and I was actually launching a design thinking course um, to bring design and thinking about design and thinking about human centered design and bringing that into an informatics curriculum. And that sort of ballooned and I was able to be um, the lead design thinking grant instructor um, where we kind of rolled it out for an entire undergraduate program and um, I met Sandy through that process.
0: I just want to say that I feel like your work and your life is like it just sounds like this ballet (laughs) that you know you've you've gone through these things and the way that you describe things and how deep they are and eth really are it just kind of is like this like beautiful ballet that you're just like i'm just designing this thing and it's going to be great and you really understand the human aspect of design thinking and not many people get that because you're so right when you say you could roll out a cadillac of charting systems and if the human does not understand it or if it doesn't work for the patient on the other end it's not going to work
2: Yeah, I don't, I mean, I don't always know. (laughs) It probably, it probably makes more sense in retrospect, right? Like in the moment, I don't always know sort of like what I'm chasing, but I am chasing something. And I guess, you know, looking at it through sort of like a dance lens, like when you're choreographing, when you're choreographing something, you don't always know like what's going to fit at a certain point. Right. Um, but you just like you hear the music, or you have a sense of of a quality of a kind of movement that you want to that you want to do, um, but you don't know like what the finished piece is going to look like. Right. And so I think it's very much like that. I mean, I I think that I like latch on to a question, and I will sort of. I've never felt confined to only use nursing or or nursing tools. Um, to answer a question. So like when something is sort of vexing me, I'll just, I'll just look anywhere that I feel like I can find the answer in any discipline.
0: That's so amazing. I have to also ask, have you ever heard of Adam Grant? He's an author and he is a a PhD in organizational psychology.
2: I have heard of him, but I haven't read him, if that makes sense
0: yes i highly recommend reading his books because we're listening to podcasts that he's on because he kind of goes into what you are also describing in terms of how to understand organizational change and leadership and his books have really sparked a lot of creativity in myself i think you would love him and what he like has to like say and, and things like that and his changing lens and how he views things so yeah just a thought um so then you became a Johnson Johnson Nurse Innovation Fellow probably about like what two years ago mm-hmm. is when that, that, that started. And tell me about the concept of nurses you should know.
2: Yeah. Um, so the, the Nurse Innovation Fellowship kind of grew out of two things. One was um, I am a founding member of SANCIEL, which is the Society of Nurse Scientists, Innovators, Entrepreneurs, and Leaders. And they were merging and and coming up and brainstorming with J&J about like, how do we scale innovation within the nursing culture? It's not necessarily something that you associate with nurses. J&J had done extensive research with um, a research firm that found that across the board, nurses were really kind of like revered and respected. Mm Um, but that their their work wasn't being recognized. So like across the board, everyone was saying like, wow, like everything is happening, nurses are the glue, all of these things, but like publicly um, they were sort of on the bottom of things when it came to decision-making or power or having a voice. Um, and so I think what J&J did with that research is they wanted to flip that script and take sort of like the, the the gems and the gold that nurses are able to kind of create something from nothing and, and hack, you know, the internet is so full right now with like all of the nurse hacks. And instead of looking at those as, hey, that nurse wasn't following the rules. Hey, like that nurse isn't you know, following the orders, like that nurse is thinking outside the box, like actually acknowledging that that creativity is innovation and that innovation and problem solving is inherent in a nursing role and calling it that because for so long, a lot of the research and the literature were calling that workarounds and almost like penalizing nurses for Um, thinking outside the box and trying to solve what they were seeing that was right in front of them with the resources that they had in their hands. And maybe it was just, you know, a roll of tape. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You're so right. So that fellowship kind of, you know, between Sancial and J and J they were trying to look for a way, I think to really like enhance the pipeline or scale out this idea of, of nurses as innovators. And because of my work, um, trying to scale all of the design thinking, um, I, I applied and, and was one of the ones one of the nurses selected. Um, so I, I I wanted to initially to use it as an opportunity to kind of scale out. You know how how far can we push design thinking? How can we allow nurses to be creative? Um, these are the problem solvers of you know all of the complexities that are in healthcare. And at the same time, I was enrolled in this doctorate program. And just like um, Dr. Kyle had mentioned, you know, I was starting to be exposed to critical race theory, which essentially is this idea that like, you know, just let's acknowledge racism. It's -hmm. just there. Mm -hmm. It's omnipresent. And there's no sense in like creating a model where racism doesn't exist because then it's not reality. And the other thing in critical race theory is that they talk about narrative and the use of narrative. So instead of like using numbers and percentages and statistics to kind of tell a story, like let's actually use storytelling to tell a story, to articulate what's happening. Um, And so much made sense to me when I was introduced to that model because it wasn't like social determinants of health were just like in this vacuum, right? Mm -hmm. Um, It's like, no, they're happening under this, you know this umbrella of these broken systems. Um, And I really, I really found it compelling to um, look through the lens of, of the narrative of nursing. And the more I was studying in my doctorate program, I might have a one-off assignment, but I would always apply the lens to nursing. And I was doing this one particular paper and there were two things that happened. One was that I was reading about this nurse, Estelle Mazzy Osborne. And I was like, well, how 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 have I how I've been a nurse for 15 years? And I'm only now really understanding what she was able to accomplish and what she what she did. She was the first Black nurse to have a master's degree back in the 1930s. Um, she helped to integrate the American Nurse Association. She helped to integrate the US Army Nurse Corps. And yet I really hadn't been exposed to her. And as as Dr. Cayo knows, you know she wrote one of the pieces on the internet that is about this nurse and when I was doing research about her I saw a letter that she wrote to um, the ANA at the time saying and explaining like why we should be integrated and right next to her letter was a letter from a white nurse saying well these are the reasons why we don't want to integrate and we want to stay segregated Mm. and again that was never part of the nursing narrative. No. That was never part of what I knew. And again, I, at this point, I already had two degrees in nursing, right? Right. And I, I felt like kind of like robbed. Like yeah. I, I felt like, you know, this, a lot of the iconography and the imagery and the mythology around nursing is sort of like this benevolent, um, altruistic thing that I think is is shielding us from really seeing what is going on in our profession. Um, and, and as I was like learning more and more and digging more and more, it just became apparent that my work with the fellowship had to be around this issue. Um, and Sandy, you know, through the work that we had done in the implementing the design thinking, I had reached out to her probably a year ago, or if not more, as I was sort of on this journey and um, sending her some of the papers that I was writing. And um, I didn't know at the time that it would turn into this project, but it was sort of like this ongoing periodic communication that we would have that started over email um, that kind of was going back and forth and, and starting to kind of build in momentum.
0: That is just, I mean, you hit a nail on the head because I remember back in my nursing school when we took nursing theory, and I'm sure it's the same type of idea that you learned about maybe six people. They were all females and they were all white and you thought, oh, okay, this must be it because that's all you're teaching me. And I remember probably a year and a half ago, I started blogging and I wanted to do more digging because I I kept thinking like, there's gotta be more people out there that you know have been nurses in history that are indigenous or are black or are different than me maybe they're neurodiverse and have done something to, with nursing that has changed the way nursing is but we just haven't heard their stories and when I forget who posted it first somewhere whether it was Johnson Johnson whether it's Sancio or whether it, if it was you Joanna that posted this um excuse me, nurses, you should know. I was kind of like, yes, like this is what we need to fit into here to share these stories so that these nurses have voices that have long since, you know, been hit under some rug, right? And have to come out and share their stories and what they've accomplished and what they've done so that we can kind of change the narrative. And I really love this piece of how the project began. And I'm gonna read it really quickly because I I think it's really important. And it kind of like goes over some stuff of what you just mentioned, but I do want people to hear this. So this is titled How the Project Began. It's on the nursing.jnj.com website. I will put the link in the podcast um, description at the end of the episode as well. So everybody can go to it after this is recorded and, and released. During the summer of 2019, in the first year of my doctorate in education, I thought I was writing a standard paper about the history of nursing and that's in quotes, history of nursing. Like many nurses over the centuries, I knew the significance of the late 1800s and the accounts of nurses like Florence Nightingale and Clara Barton. What I didn't know was their contributions alone did not comprise the full narrative of our profession. While having foundational roots in Britain, the story of American professional nursing, in fact, unfolds with and mirrors American history itself. From slavery to reconstruction, Jim Crow to civil rights, colonization to immigration policy, Since day one, nurses of color have fundamentally transformed the profession, advanced care outcomes and played central roles in areas like abolition, midwifery and maternal and public health, nursing integration and advocacy, military service, civil rights, public policy, research, and through to present day pioneers in informatics, entrepreneurship, innovation and politics. The nurses of color who changed our history did so in spite of being denied pay or pension from the Union Army, were denied entry from nursing schools, were limited by which nursing roles they could fulfill, which patients they could serve, which hospitals or organizations would employ them, and were excluded from organization and sororities, and so they created their own. Yet the contributions of nurses of color are rarely included in our professional origin story. Unlike other fields that include discussion of American history as part of degree programs, most nursing schools don't require either American history or history of nursing for graduation and are devoted to clinical practice and scientific study. This means that nurses can graduate with blind spots and lack the historical context to even see the exclusionary practices, racism and discrimination in our past and present. Yet this makes us vulnerable to repeating our past mistakes. It is only through facing our real history a history representative of all nurses that we can truly own our reputation as the most trusted profession and be ready to lead from a place of inclusion that is one of the greatest pieces i've read and i know it's pretty short um but it speaks of such passion that you have and even when you started this project you know you, you can tell that it that it just kind of became this mosaic of just things to bring together and people to bring together and things like that how did you reach out to other people to be a part of this? And either Joanna or Sandy can can answer the question. Um, I, I, I wanna know like, how did this come together? How are you promoting nurses? How can people find you? And you know what are some of the backstories to this?
1: Yeah, I can jump in. Um, and, and so I think after hearing that, it just reminds me and it gets me all excited again, um, <laughs> just in all the, just all the passion that Joanna has in t- in the work that she's done it's incredible to see how far we've come with this project alone um you know so i um you know was teaching uh, again at the time that i ta- that i met joanna and so i had a-, a lot of colleagues and friends who um were a part of various uh, organizations so i myself am a member of national black nurses association i sit on the national policy committee and i was a, a uh, founding member of our Greater New York City uh, Black Nurses Association chapter. I also am a member of Chi-Ada Phi, which is a black nursing sorority. And then I'm also a member of Sigma Theta Tau. So I, um, I was doing the most. So I, I had a lot of connections <laughs> in that, and just personally in all the, the organizations that I played a leadership role in. And um, I, I literally just brought in all of my colleagues who are doing the same and similar work in those spaces um, one of the books that I had to read, uh, when I first started my first semester of my PhD program, which I think is interesting. And there, are, um, some similarities in some of this work is why are all the black kids sitting together in the cafeteria and and whether there's so much like shared camaraderie in the struggle oftentimes. So like, you'll find, I think that, um, I, I, I find in, in as my own experience as a nurse of color, we, um are a small group, but powerful. And we lead in, in almost any space that we are in. And so that's the beautiful thing about the connection is that all of us are intertwined between some of these organizations. And I think just starting there um, was huge, I, I
2: think. And uh, John, I
1: don't know if you had anything else to add.
2: Oh, 100%. I mean, Sandy, like, the, I don't know if the project would exist because when you're like in your own head you're kind of like you know doing your assignments you're finding these things like you're like no offense to my family but like they don't really care (laughs) like it's not like I could be like oh my god did you oh my god I just found that. and it like it doesn't resonate unless you're in the field unless you are a nurse I've talked to so many nurses at this point and you know there's a range of emotions around it um and there was a, a, a there was a lot of agreement. You know, like I would kind of email a thing and I would be like, hey, you know, I feel like the the narrative that that we're told is sort of like, okay, this person came out of the Crimean War in Britain, and then, you know, then there was nursing and happily ever after. And there's just nothing else. And as I was learning all the else, I was realizing that it it so significantly shifts what we think of as nursing you know the sort of nightingale version of nursing was was intentionally geared toward a certain kind of victorian woman um, at a certain age and um it was Really intended um, as a means, like if you were, if you watch Bridgerton or like any of those period pieces, if you were, you know, a woman, you didn't really have a way to not be married and and be in society, right? And so ha- having this as an outlet, as a way that you could be educated, that you could serve, that you could kind of have a career that was, quote unquote, acceptable by society. Um, was this very um, specific thing that she had to navigate with physicians that physicians couldn't feel too threatened by the role of the nurse. Yeah. And so there's all of these different dynamics that were at play um, that are a lot more complex and nuanced than just, you know, Florence Nightingale, the mother of nursing, and that's the end of the story, you know. Um, and, I, I realized that as I was studying all of these different nurses of color, that there's this whole other narrative that is showing how nurses actually push the status quo. And they actually challenge and they actually like raise the standard of care and innovate care and are social innovators and things like school nursing, public health nursing, all of these things are 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 things that we just take for granted. Um, but they really show you how innovation is, is actually like it, the inception of nursing if we tell the entire story. Um, and so I think this idea of is nursing sort of like following the rules and subservient or is nursing actually like challenging the status quo and looking for the entire community and population health and is patient-centered? You know, I think we, we have these two narratives um, that are in existence. And when I would kind of share this with people and say, you know, I feel like we're being taught X, but what I'm really seeing is why. I would get a lot of like, yes, I see what you're saying. I see what you're saying. But it was really Dr. Kayo who was like, not only do I see what you're saying and not only do I, you know, agree with your findings, but let's talk to this person and let's talk to this person and I'm working with a student and she could work with you. And you know what? I just met someone else and let's connect with them. And so it was really that tangible, concrete, um, you know, pushing it forward. um, I think that went from just like an email to like actually becoming a project.
0: That's awesome. So it's kind of like this web of people that just came together as like a social enterprise and pushed innovation in a way that has never been pushed before.
1: That is so well articulated. I will, I love that. Yes, yeah. that's exact. And that's exactly what I was visualizing when you were speaking to John. I was like, oh, this was like a perfect web of all these interconnected yeah. folks. So yeah, it did work out really nicely.
0: That's awesome. So do you guys have some favorite stories of yours? of people that you have already featured?
1: Yeah, um, well, I think I I love, and, and, and Joanna already alluded to this, um, a Maisie Osborne, um, you know, she again received one of the first black women to receive the master's. And, you know, I always felt like, you know, you can't be what you can't, uh, what you don't see. And so I think it's so important um, to have that level of representation um and so uh, you know then there's all these current like we're giving people their flowers like real life and so then you know I have so many of my colleagues that were also featured on here um who are doing incredible work that I've worked on with, with on several different projects um with them and I just love the fact that we are able to highlight each other um in the work that we're doing. And there's no, it's not competitive. It's not, you know, it, you don't have that. Tr- some of Sometimes it's just like, really like, oh, you're doing this? Well, I was doing this too. Why didn't I get, like, no, we all can have a space to be great. And I think that's what I love about it. It's contemporary, but it really tips the hat to all so much of the historical um, underpinnings and influencers. Um, I mean, Dr. Shelton Fields, who's a mentor of mine, Who's was the first black male to have received um, a PhD from Penn. And like, he, he is, a, has inspired me to do hold many of my leadership positions and go back to school. And so when I, I see some of these incredible women and men um, of color who have paved the way I learned so much, I didn't know um, about some of these. And I, I, I was like ashamed that I didn't, but hmm. I'm so glad that, um, there's this living resource now, like Instagram is probably going to be around for a little bit, but that's like one of our, you know, platforms, but, you know, people can always come here and, you know, the work that we're doing, it's going to continue and it's, it's going to have to be incorporated into our curriculum. It's going to have to be talked about at the bedside with our interdisciplinary teams. Like, you know, I, I, that's what I love about this. So.
0: Joanna
2: do you you have stories? Go ahead. Yeah um, I think one that comes to mind is Sally Tucker Allen and the reason is because um, she was working on a PhD and she was in Illinois and she through her PhD was doing research and she was trying to find other black faculty at nursing schools and she was you know doing her dissertation and as these things go sometimes the dissertation can just be like a springboard into this whole other thing. Um, And so it went it started as a dissertation and then it turned into, you know, we should really have a better way to communicate. This is (laughs) pre-internet. And so they created the Association for Black Nursing Faculty. And that kind of could have been like the beginning and the end of the story. They created this organization, they met, they had conferences. But what she did was she actually created her own publishing house. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) And I feel like it is the epitome of this, you know, you don't need to like wait for a seat at the table. You can create your own table. Yeah. Um, if you look at some of the things like Ava DuVernay is doing to diversify the film industry and you know, it's like, you don't have to wait. Like if your work isn't being published like create your own publishing house. And when you look back and you see what they were publishing, it's it's so, um, it, it's so incredible to see, all of the work that has gone in. Um, and I think the 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 where we are now and and what I hope this project can achieve is really tipping the the contributions and the work of nurses of color to be really understood and acknowledged in more of like the white mainstream nursing community because It's not that the stories and the contributions aren't there in any means. We've only scratched the surface. But I think that, you know, when you look at the stories and you really see the, the setting and the culture and the environment in which nurses of color have had to really navigate it, it poses a question for white nurses mm-hmm. to say, am I going to put barriers and create barriers and create hoops and you know, create stops for nurses of color? Or am I going to open doors? Am I going to ally? Am I going to elevate? Am I going to amplify? Am I going to support and endorse and fund? You know, and so I think that by really having the true nursing history, I think it gives a template for looking at you know what role are white nurses going to play? We continue to be really the dominant um, demographic in nursing, and so we have an incredible power and privilege to open doors or close doors. And you can see when you read a lot of the stories kind of in the background of these stories are boards of nursing that, you know, wouldn't grant licenses, that wouldn't let people sit for tests, that, you know, would change and alter, you know, admissions, you know, under the guise of standardization, but also, you know, clearly in a discriminatory in a discriminatory fashion and we have to own that history Mm. we have to look at it plainly we can't believe ourselves to be so benevolent that we weren't capable of that because clearly we were and I think that as you know as a nursing profession we really need to come clean so that we don't keep repeating those kinds of mistakes
0: yes and keep pushing people back when they should be with us you know, and creating things and innovating with, with everybody and just enjoying everybody, you know, and making healthcare better because that's who we are as patients as much as we are as nurses, as well as Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Instagram. What does your medium look like? Is that kind of like a blog
2: that, that you do? Yeah. Medium houses all the stories. Okay. Um, so it's sort of like a publication, a blog. Um, our main website and then just last month is when we launched our actual present day videos so there's a story but now for present day nurses every story on medium will link to a video Um, that is so cool yeah it's it really brings a whole new like level of I think from a storytelling perspective, um, it's amazing to see, it's amazing to see in the bridge and the project is going all year long um, on purpose because we didn't want to just be only Black History Month, only Asian Pacific Heritage Month, only National, um, National Hispanic Heritage Month, um, Indigenous Peoples Month. We didn't want to just like limit it and constrain it to only those months, um, but certainly acknowledging those months um, and making sure that when those months are not being celebrated that the stories you know, don't fade away. That's awesome. So then what comes after this year? Great question. Um, yeah, <laughs> Just to say, that is a good question. <laughs> um, we have had some internal things. I think sometimes, you know, in design thinking, one of the phases in design thinking is iteration, right? And so, in some ways, I think this is like a prototype. It's a live prototype where yeah. we're we're like putting it out for everyone to digest. But I think already we're having conversations about, like, what are the levers that we can pull? Like, should we be really going to, like, nursing education as an establishment and trying to advocate for, you know, history to be included in curriculum? Should we be doing more of, like, an outside-in, more, you know, having it gain momentum on its own? Um, One thing that we just talked about at our last meeting was you know, Wikipedia at this point is is really like this standard bearer of information, and so maybe we should liaison with nursing schools in the fall and have nursing students help us as like a national campaign to make sure that there are nurses of color that are in Wikipedia. Um, so I think we're kind of allowing, we're putting out the project, and then we're like allowing for the dialogue and the feedback to help us figure out what steps should be taken next that sounds so awesome and I say that
0: because I, I have in my mind this visual library where you have like these like um pillars if you will that are flattened and if you scroll your mouse over you can kind of like see a picture and you click on it I'm i I have this in my mind because it was at Gonzaga and I forget what it actually entailed but you can kind of like click on these leaders of all sorts and learn about them by clicking on one of them and i'm like this would be such a great thing to do for this project in the future as like as like a library of people and events and videos so that people can kind of click on them and the other thing that, that i thought of was you guys should just rewrite the nursing theory book i mean and just include these people what yes. they
1: did, i love that idea
0: you know and and have a book be be done i mean it'd be a tremendous amount of work but you could include these stories as Either as like a desk reference or also as like a curricular item that could be offered in classes, and certainly that could be a great way of you know introducing it to either beginning curricula or curricula that is introduced perhaps in the clinical setting, so that before you before you even see a patient, you're learning about the stuff. Yeah, I,
1: absolutely. I think. Um... You know, I love how this has just continued to have um, continuous movement flow and just like connections like we talked about. I know that um, I was on Clubhouse, which is another, I think, cool platform. And I met a few folks and I met a nurse who was focusing on her PhD on the history of nursing. And so I know Joanna has been working with her. And so I think that like when you look at the potential, it's actually pretty endless. Like I'd love to see. I'm a I am a policy advocate, advocacy and legislative um, advocate. Obviously, like I, I, I would love to see implications for legislation and policy changes across the continuum. I mean, there's so many ways we can continue this work, and there's so many different branches from this tree and this foundation that we're really that we've planted that I, I could see there being impact for years to come. So I'm, I'm excited about it. I think this opportunity, this platform, this ability to have a conversation about it is critical. And I, I just want us to be able to, to eat, just even have conversations more, to even be able to recognize like, oh, this is a thing. Yeah, no, it is. So I think I, I, I'm excited for where we, where we are and where we're going for sure.
0: Or a Netflix documentary special
1: you can binge oh my god just put it out there <laughs> yes i am putting it
0: out to the cover. universe it's gonna get made it'll be like an eight it'll be like an eight episode series or something where y'all can binge watch it and, i love it you know oh my god that'd be so great if we if, if wait, like i'm involved in this i'm not
1: yeah no it's okay like we can get cardi b to play a nurse like we'll get all the famous people to play these nurses and get them to you know i can see it now there you go my, my saturday
0: night will be sitting around the couch and i, and I will watch it be, be awesome oh goodness Absolutely. so great well joanna and sandy anything else to discuss talk about whatever y'all want to say
1: yeah nicole i just want to thank you again just for allowing us the space and um, um this platform i'm extremely grateful um i think i would just encourage my colleagues peers and you know students anyone who's listening you know we we talked about How can you personally make a difference? It only, it starts with one. And so like, you know, as we really get out there and challenge the status quo, ask critical questions, have these uncomfortable conversations, hold people accountable and just be transparent in the work that we do. I think that's when we'll see the real change. Um, I can't tell you how many times I've had to have uncomfortable conversations with people, but I set the tone where, hey, this is not, to paint you as a bad person or to you know um set, you know establish an issue here there's the only issue i have is that i we need to recognize this we need to talk about this we need to talk about how this impacts care and outcomes deleteriously for bipoc folks so how do we change that narrative how do we move past this some people are receptive or receptive a lot of people are not but i think this is the time if not now then when
0: yes exactly and i think you say such a great thing with setting the tone is such a huge thing as you know when you when you want to talk about things and not seem like you're going to attack somebody but really set the tone of open dialogue and having that traditional symposium style talk where no you know you have open discussions and everyone's heard and you move forward with it. Absolutely. Joanna, anything else that that you want to say?
2: No, I, I echo, you know, my gratitude as well to, you know, be able to speak about the project. I think, you know, in sort of the design thinking frame of mind, you want to kind of learn by doing and you want to minimize, you know, the thinking to action. And so um, through a combination of, you know, having studied design thinking for a while and through, Dr. Cayo saying, oh, let's talk to this person, oh, let's talk to that person, let's have a, you know, email, I'll connect you with this person and that person. I think the barrier to starting the project was low and I felt like there was a sense of urgency and I didn't want to, you know, wait around or finish my dissertation or, you know, like analyze this or get funding, like I just, I just felt like there was a sense of urgency um, that the more information I learned, um, the more I felt like it needed to be shared. So being able to talk about the project and um, get the word out about it, we can include in whatever notes you have about how to contact us. Yes, um, absolutely. You know, I think it's it's really an evolving it's, it's simply an evolving thing. We want to share with not only nurses, um, but the broader healthcare community, um, you know, what the face of nursing has looked like and it does look like. And um, I'm just grateful to be able to have you know, Dr. Cayo and, and others working to make this you know from an email into this project.
0: It's awesome. It's so amazing. Joanna and Sandy, I can't thank you enough for joining me on the podcast episode tonight. Thank you so much. I look forward to to talking to you both soon.
2: Thank you, Nicole. Stay safe. Thank you. Thanks so much.